Hey listeners, this is Andy. Wanted to apologize real quick for the audio quality and certain parts of this episode. There were some pretty significant thunderstorms that rolled through the Oklahoma City area on the day that we recorded, and those storms knocked out internet access for at least two of us uh, that had some rolling impacts throughout the day, and I'm afraid that negatively impacted our connectivity while we were recording remotely. So, I appreciate your patience and your dedication and listening. Next week will be better. Hey everybody and welcome to Let's Pod This. My name is Andy Moore and I'm joined by... My two co-hosts and a special guest today will go with the hosts first. Um, Bailey Perkins, hello. How are you? Hello, I'm great. Great. Thanks for being here. Scott Melson, how are you, sir? Man, just living my best Corona life. <laughs> Every week you try to come up with a new way to weave that in, don't you? <laughs> and a special guest uh, today, a friend of the pod, um, previous guest on a number of occasions, local attorney, Brian Jones. Hello, Brian. Hey, thanks for having me on. Can thanks we call him, him? Can we call him our scholar in resident? I we we could. Um, <laughs> our let's pod this legal expert, Brian Jones. Legal or, ooh, legal correspondent. Let's pod ooh. this legal correspondent. Legal correspondent. That's fancy. That is fancy. So I'm this week, update my resume. <laughs> <laughs> it's very now it's official. We'll get you. Uh, we'll get you like a. I'll I'll print a business card, just one though, that you can carry with you. Oh, I can't give it out. I, this is my last one. So this week in Oklahoma politics, we've got kind of a hodgepodge of things to talk about today. One is you know obviously we'll do a, a touch on coronavirus. Numbers are quite high, but perhaps some numbers that are high are. A good thing for Oklahoma. We'll talk about testing in just a minute. Uh, we'll talk about masks. Today's the deadline for legislators to request interim studies, which is good because we've been putting off talking about that for a few weeks. And so perhaps next week we can come back and find out what all they've requested. We expect the leadership in House and Senate to announce which studies have been approved later this month. They should be around the end of July and make those announcements. Uh, something that happened last week that I think is ancillary to the big topic today, but two additional tribes signed new gaming compacts last week. Uh, the United Kitawa Band of the Cherokee Nation and um, the Kailagi Tribal Town. Um, both are somewhat smaller tribal entities, uh, similar to the Oto Missouri Tribe and the Comanche Tribe that had previously signed these new gaming compacts. Uh, and so this is an interesting development. And then perhaps the big kahuna that we'll discuss today is the Supreme Court ruling that came out yesterday uh, on McGirt versus Oklahoma. And this is from the U.S. Supreme Court, the Supreme Court of the United States, not just our state Supreme Court, which we seem to discuss much more frequently. And so, a 5-4 decision, which is really interesting. That's right. Um Yes, it was. Uh, we'll talk about this in a minute, but it's a it's a fascinating opinion. 
Um, and I will link to the opinion in the show notes for this episode for any listeners who have not already read it. Um, uh, Justice Gorsuch wrote the majority opinion. It is a really well-written and interesting read, even if you're not a legal nerd like we are. So uh, with that, we'll come back to McGirt and kind of spend most of our time there. But let's let's start off at the top of the hour with uh, the current state of affairs of COVID-19. For that, we go to Dr. Scott Melson. Scott, where are we at? I mean, who really knows, man? Like, um, you know, we've seen a steady a steady rise in cases over the last uh, few weeks. Um, we had our 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 season high uh, our season high of reportable cases on Tuesday this week of uh, it was nearly a thousand eight hundred and like sixty five, I think um, uh, eight hundred plus, uh, well well over eight hundred and fifty. Um, you know, so that's that's not great. We've seen 500 plus, I think, every other day this week. Sometimes 600 plus, with the exception of Monday. Um, the governor had a press conference yesterday um, that was, I mean, for me, left a lot to be desired. Um, you know, one of the things that he talked about yesterday was that you know that we're nowhere near capacity in terms of our ICU beds. He said we'd have to take, we would have to have 2,000 new infections a day for two weeks to even approach our ICU capacity, which many people noted was like, well, that's not what it says on the executive order reports that the health department puts out every day. And so now you're getting into a little bit of semantics, right? What capacity is and what gets reported every day. And so what the governor was saying is that hospitals, like what's getting reported is what they have staffing for on a day-to-day basis, not like what they could potentially do in like a worst case surge planning kind of scenario. So the governor seems to be saying that like in terms of our in terms of where our hospitals are staffed currently, that's the number that gets reported every day. And that's different than what the actual intensive care bed capacity is on a day to day basis. Now, I would just throw out there, okay, that's fine. But where do the like I don't know, where does the like 180% increase in nurses come from to staff the ICU beds that we're not using, right? So that's that's one thing. Like you don't just manufacture like critical nurses and physicians out of nowhere, right? Um, and so Scott, that's aren't we talking about like across the state too when we talk about yeah. like number of beds and stuff? And so there may be beds in you know, three hours from Oklahoma city. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> but- exactly. Exactly. So that's, so that's part of the issue too, right. Is that like, you know um, you know, there are several hospitals in Oklahoma city that are having a lot more coronavirus admissions than they have previously. I know that's the case in Tulsa as well. Um, so yeah, I think there, I think we're probably, you know, we're probably not at capacity yet, but certainly, you know, certainly our hospitalizations are now starting to go up. And I guess the thing that's a little bit maddening is that the governor is saying, like, we're nowhere near capacity. And it's like, right. So from my perspective, now would be the time to take mitigation measures that are probably going to take two weeks to have a measurable impact in the newly uh, new daily number of cases and probably another thing after that to have a measurable impact so so now right like today would be the day that we should that we should act so that we don't approach those numbers right the time to change course is not when you're at a breaking point right the goal is to try and mitigate this before you get to a breaking point the other thing that i really took issue with with the governor yesterday was that he said like i like and this is the first time we've ever heard him say this right previously previously he has said at least every time i've heard him speak what he has said is um there is not a need for a mask mandate in Oklahoma. 
Like the data doesn't support that. Our cases aren't high enough. You know, we've, we've, you know, he says, as he always does, we've handled this better than any state in the country. Um, you know, but yesterday he said, I'm not comfortable with the mask mandate. That's not something I'm going to do. Like I took that to mean there's really like, there's not a circumstance under which the governor is going to mandate that people wear face masks. Um, and as a doctor and also a person that is like infuriating <laughs> to me. Um, It's really interesting with that, because today, um, Mayor Bynum in Tulsa um, mm -hmm. made a statement where they may potentially have mask mandates within um, Tulsa's jurisdiction. And Mm -hmm. so while the governor may not feel comfortable doing it, we may see municipalities stepping up and doing that. And normally, Oklahoma City and Tulsa... um, walk in lockstep when it comes to policy making um, on municipal issues. And so I'm curious to see if Tulsa puts that into place, what will happen in Oklahoma City? And then what does that mean for the governor in terms of not feeling comfortable putting that type of policy in place? Right. You know, and it's, and, you know, it's a great point, Bailey. And like next week, actually, there's already an, uh, an emergency meeting, I think, or I don't know, I don't know what the exact term is, but the Oklahoma City Council is meeting next week to discuss this very issue. Governor, or uh, Mayor Holt uh, put out a tweet thread earlier this week saying like, you know what, the, in his view, essentially like the time for executive action has passed and he really wants to see further mitigation strategies coming from, you know, democratically elected representatives of the city's wards. Um, and so there's going to be a, an emergency city council meeting this week to discuss, you know, further mitigation measures. And I have no doubt that a mask mandate will be among those. You know, one thing that I was really frustrated by, I remain frustrated by, and I don't understand. And Bailey, you've you've worked in professional politics. I think you've done. Have you done some press work? I feel like you've done some some press work, uh, like as a press. Have you done like press secretary work or communications work? I can't not, remember. Not exactly in a job title, but I mean, I've written things for sure. Um, elected leaders. <laughs> well, so so here's here's something I'm having trouble wrapping my head around, right? Like, the governor state keeps saying, like, I think that it is up to individual people to take personal responsibility and decide how best to protect their themselves, their families, and their businesses from coronavirus. And if they think that they can wear a mask, that's great. But if they're comfortable going out in public not wearing a mask, that's their choice. I don't understand why so far none of our amazing local journalists, and there are several, why has no one asked the governor, okay, Governor Stitt, just quick clar- clarification, totally understand your point about personal responsibility, but one of the big things of mask wearing is to protect other people. Right. So why is it that the state of Oklahoma may, may, doesn't have a responsibility to protect me from someone else's poor decision not to wear a mask when they're out in public? Right. Like it's not about taking away individual freedom. It's about saying we all have to do this to protect everyone. And one has asked him that question. Like, what's the justification for saying that the state doesn't have a responsibility to protect all of its citizens. And the way that you protect all of its cititizens is to mandate mask wearing. Do you have any idea? Yeah. I mean, the tough part, because all of it, frankly, connects back to ideological viewpoints about the role of government. And this is another reflection 
that the governor's viewpoint is that it's not the role of government to make people protect other people. But why won't someone why won't someone ask him that question and make him say that? I think there's different. Maybe they might watch this podcast and ask him that question (laughs) in the next press conference. (laughs) I told you yesterday you should tweet at them and say, Hello, friendly reporters. Could someone please ask this? I'm sure someone would be willing to to ask that very question. But I mean the sad part is you know what the answer is going to be. There's this misinterpretation of what Freedom and liberty means because um, people love to quote the Constitution, but don't quite exactly know what it means, especially when it comes to public health and public health, you yeah. know, implications. Because I was telling someone on the Facebook page yesterday, I mean, this is no different than telling drivers that you have to have a license in order to operate a vehicle, or telling businesses that you have to abide by certain health standards if you're going to serve people food, right? And so there's just different ways that government has intervened to ensure that people are protected, um, whether that's in uh, business-to-business interactions, whether that's um, being in public spaces with other people. And so it really is just baffling that wearing a mask has suddenly become so politicized that we're acting like it's it's a new thing that has never been done or a new process that's never been done in in society and so um andy would love to hear your thoughts too you know i i i agree that i think wearing a mask could be required by the government in the same manner that we are required to wear seat belts or that like restaurants have um like health department code things right you got to wear hair nets and gloves and that kind of stuff and why is that makes sense but we don't want to do it i suspect it's because this would be a statewide thing that would apply to everybody and not just people that are in a particular role and that makes it more difficult politically and also i i think there's still this difficulty that all of us probably to some extent many of us have that we think about wearing masks and most other protective measures as a way to protect ourselves. But in this scenario with, with COVID wearing a mask is more about protecting other people. And so that's a different thing. Right. And so then it's, and it's not ending COVID, right? It's mitigating the risk of right. passing on. So you can reduce the spread. And so right. I think that's another misinterpretation is that, well, you know, just because I'm not wearing a mask doesn't mean it's going to go away. But it sure is going to stop how widespread um, COVID, you know, reaches. So, right. I, I was talking with my kids about this um, on Wednesday. the The school that my kids go to, an elementary school, is like one where you get in by a lottery because there's not enough people that live in, not enough kids in that neighborhood, so they let other kids come in, and. So Edmund, you can you can go in person or you can go online. They have some options and you can kind of switch between them, you know, depending on the family's needs or, or what they feel is best, which is honestly, it's probably as good of a plan as any district could put out, right? Like it kind of covers many options. For my kids' school, if they go online, then they would lose their slot at that school because of the lottery system. And so they got to go in person. So I said, well, what do you think about that? You know, what are the rules? It's like, you know, no adults, no parties, no carnivals, can't share snacks, can't share pencils. They kind of knew all the rules already. What about masks? Yeah, you got to wear masks. 
And I said, well, how do you feel about that? And they've worn masks, you know, if we've been, if we had to go into the store or something. And my son said, it's like wearing sunscreen. I hate putting it on, but you got to do it because it's healthy. Well, this kid gets it, right? Like, that's exactly... It's an eight-year-old can get it. <laughs> right, right. And I said, you know, well, some people really have a hard time with it. They make a big deal. And he said, well, it's like a little harder to breathe, but like wearing sunglasses makes it a little harder to see, and people still do that. And I was like, yes, man, this is exactly right. I don't know anybody who likes walking around with a face mask all day, right? But um, if you look around the world... You know, uh, uh, the U.S. had 55,000 new cases, I think, on Wednesday, and Germany had 500, right? So the the difference is not like just Oklahoma population. Oklahoma had more cases than Germany. That's yeah. Crazy. Yeah. And, and the, the difference the difference is masking and, like, robust robust public health infrastructure that, that people are willing to listen to. And the fact that, you know, we've entered a period in our history that um, truth has become subjective, right? Like where truth, you have an opinion, you know, you have an opinion and I have an opinion and people treat opinions as though like they're facts and that they have the same validity, right? Whereas like, if you say, mm, well, you know, I believe, you know, I say, I believe in coronavirus. and I think it's bad. And I think we need to have, we need to wear masks to mitigate the spread, you know, and you say, oh, well, I think the virus is a hoax. You know, I understand that you think it's not, but that's just your opinion. No, that's not my opinion. That's what's real. And you're wrong. Right. <laughs> but um, um, we've kind that's of. That's a good point. It's really a scary time when facts become either political or they become an opinion. I don't know how that that works. <sighs> it's, like, so I would encourage you to go back. Are now becoming somebody's personal opinion and political belief. Yeah. 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 That's terrifying. So Stephen Colbert um, had a clip in October of 2005. So 15 years ago um, where he had um, this on the Colbert rapport. The word was like the section and they had a word of the day and the word was truthiness. truthiness. I remember uh, and he 100% was already talking about what we're experiencing now. Um, and even uh, in 2016 on The Late Show with Stephen Colbert, um, the, someone had used the term post-truth. Like, we live in a post-truth world. And he said, like, this is just a ripoff of truthiness. I had this idea 11 years prior. Uh, and so here we are, you know, 15 years after he aired this i fully expect come october for that clip to be making the rounds again i may tweet it out here in just a little while it's a really good clip all that to say my take on covid is it's not great it's getting worse please for the love wear a mask if you leave your house hey don't leave your house if you don't have to go anywhere right like don't go out for funsies um and two if you do wear a mask please yeah so we're not in a post-covid world we're not up. Oh, we're not up. And also, do not talk to me about a second wave. Okay. This is this. We haven't, the first wave has not yet crested. Okay. This is, this is the building of the first wave. Um, so there's that. Waves just well, it's keep really coming. interesting. I have to tell the story. Uh, there's this Facebook video of this little, little girl. She can't be any older than four. And she's just bawling her eyes out because I guess. The ice cream truck in that area no longer goes by, maybe due to COVID. I don't know. It could be another reason, but the ice cream truck is not coming by. And she is just crying her eyes out. 
like, I, and I can't get the ice cream. And then like, I just like going to McDonald's and playing and I can't even go there. And you know, it's funny, but it's at the same time. It's like, I feel you little baby. Like people aren't doing what they're supposed to do. And it's keeping you from getting to the places and things that you love the most. So for the little three or four year old on Facebook crying her eyes out, please wear your mask so that she can quickly get to the McDonald's play place and play again when it's safe to do. That's right. Right. Really I mean, this is worse. This is worse on the kids than us because, like, she can't go to McDonald's, but I can still go to the liquor store. So, <laughs> you know, like, I can't. I can't go to the bar, but I go to the liquor store. But she can't go to McDonald's. So, that's exactly right. Well, uh, on that note, let's make a big pivot uh, over to the the main topic of today. And if we catch anything else along the way, that's fine. But um, we want to talk about the Supreme Court case McGirt versus Oklahoma. Um, some listeners may remember we did an episode on this. It was episode 50 with the Oklahoma Solicitor General, Mithin Madison-Hani. Um, and that was at the time that they had not yet argued the case. Now we're more than a year after that. So the court last year, um, this, this case had a different name. It was... Carpenter uh, v. Murphy. And then Sharp v. Murphy. And then it became McGirt for various reasons. Well, and one to, to be, so this is actually a different case. So just there was Carpenter right. v. Murphy that became sharp. That case was argued last year. After it was argued, the justices did not decide the case. They scheduled it for re-argument this year. However, that case, the, the, the sharp case that was originally Murphy, that was never actually re-argued. So and, that Gorsuch and, could sit on so, this one. So, yeah. Whereas this case, McGirt looks at, as I understand it, at least, essentially the exact same issue. However, the difference is that this case is one in which the full panel of justices could participate. Justice Gorsuch had to be recused from uh, from Murphy, but would be able to participate in McGirt, which would decide the same question. And they actually, after they released the decision on McGirt yesterday, they released a like one sentence, like a one line opinion in in Carpenter or in uh, in the Murphy case that are sharp, you know, whatever you, whatever you want to call it, sharp was the latest iteration where it says basically this decision, see the decision in McGirt because it is the same, but right. it's an, um, it's an unsigned opinion with no vote count or anything like that. But anyway, right. so it is a different case, but it just it decided the same issue. Yeah. So rather than us hash out uh, what the case is and is not, um, Brian, would you be willing to kind of give us a quick synopsis of of what the the case is and and what it means, and then maybe we can um, kind of go into discussion and questions. So the 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 reason why, kind of going back to what you were saying, Scott, the reason why they are the same cases because they ask the same question, even though the result is quite a bit narrower than the central question, which is, was the Creek Nation Reservation ever disestablished? And that's the, the really important question for, for Oklahoma that gets decided on the way to the somewhat narrower question of whether the state of Oklahoma had criminal jurisdiction over these people for, for these crimes. Um, so the actual result is is important to these particular prisoners who sued to say that the state of Oklahoma should have never had 
criminal jurisdiction over them because these crimes have to be dealt with by um, federal courts under under federal Indian law. Um, and for, for, for these people who have now had that, that claim vindicated, there's an immediate uh, upshot, right? They're, they're immediately now able to um, get out of prison, right? I mean, this is, this is a, an order of release, essentially, what the Supreme Court said for this one individual and then through these, these other cases, these other individuals. But the question of whether the Creek Nation was, was ever disestablished was profoundly important for Oklahoma, not simply because of um, its implications for the Muscogee Creek Nation, but also because the, the same essential question could be asked for um, the other four of the five civilized tribes, Seminole, Choctaw, Cherokee, and Chickasaw nations, whose, whose claims now to have their original reservation boundaries be held intact, uh, having never been formally disestablished by Congress is, is pretty strong. One of the one of the questions I had, um, and it relates to what you just said about the other four, you know, four kind of major tribes in Oklahoma. Um, so the issue here was that the the what do you call it? the the what what's the what's the legal term for McGirt the petitioner? Is that right? Like he's, he's yeah. the yeah yeah. So so the petitioner in this case is saying my trial is invalid, my trial and conviction is invalid because Congress never officially disestablished my reservation. And the state of Oklahoma was saying, well, yeah, they did. Even if they didn't actually say it, they clearly did because they like made a state and they did all these other things. So obviously their intent was to disestablish. And Justice Gorsuch said, well, I don't see that Congress ever passed a law saying the Creek Nation is disestablished, so it's not, and the reservation is still there. Is that also true for the Cherokee, Chickasaw, Choctaw, and the other tribes? Like, is is that also true, or has Congress ever passed laws specifically stating that their reservations were disestablished? And did they have formal reservations in Oklahoma in the first place? Yeah, the answer to both questions. Well, does did Congress ever formally disestablish the reservation? Did Congress grant reservation status to the other four of the five civilized tribes? Yes. Did Congress ever formally disestablish those tribes? No. Okay. Did, did it ever formally disestablish those reservations? No. And that's, that's you know, I, I did Indian law for a very brief period of time when I was uh, in law school. So I'm, I'm relying on um, a lot of Indian law experts that I have spoken to about this over the last couple of years. But that's my understanding with regard to disestablishment of the the other four tribes. And you would have to go through a similar analysis that Gorsuch went through, and it would be different for each tribe because each tribe's reservation status reservation status was established by separate treaties, and then each tribe was was uh, dealt with by the federal government on its own individual basis. So the content of the analysis would change, but my understanding is the result would be the same for the other for the other four tribes. Well, and one thing that I found interesting in this case was that part of the state's argument about why the Muscogee Creek Nation's reservation was disestablished or that it should not have been established in the first place is that the other four tribes' reservations were established 
from free land, like federal land, and so they did not receive any money for it. Um, the the government just created the reservations and said this is yours. But they argued that the Creek Reservation had a fee attached to it that somehow they negotiated so that they got some money for it, and and because of that, the the premise on which their reservation existed should be null and void in the first place. And Justice Gorsuch basically said, well, we've punished the tribes enough and we've screwed them over in lots of ways. Let's not punish them way after the fact because they were better at negotiating a deal up front for the reservation that has no bearing on whether or not it was ever disestablished on the back end. Yeah, that's a, a really important component of the history here is that when the tribes were removed to what's you know now Oklahoma and what was originally Indian territory, um, those removals were governed by one treaty. During the Civil War, the, the five civilized tribes uh, largely sided with the Confederacy and the federal government forced a renegotiation of those treaties right after the Civil War in part to punish the tribes, but they again left the reservations themselves intact. And it's uh, Gorsuch went into this quite a bit in the opinion. It's, it's, it was pretty clear, even though the federal government was being somewhat punitive toward the Creek Nation, that the aftermath of that agreement was a treaty that reduced the reservation's territory but left it intact. It is fascinating to me how much we've talked about the Civil War in 2020, right? <laughs> um, and then when the justices decided to hold us over to this term, they had no way of knowing that we would be literally in the midst of tearing down Confederate statues and this public discussion about uh, what parts of American history should be memorialized in what ways. Uh, and so for this to come up this week of all of all weeks, it just right. um, was a, a weird intersection of issues. Sure. And Andy, I so, have a question that I wanted to, to raise as well. Um, the governor mentioned, um, well, many of the, the news uh, sites were reporting that the governor was wanting Congress to step in and act um, because there's potential implications beyond just uh, criminal rulings and what could be applied to the treaty, I mean, not the treaties, I'm sorry, but for the the reservations in Indian lands now being recognized in this way from this ruling. Um, can you talk about, is there any uh, economic implications or taxation implications? Uh, because there seem to be growing concern that it could affect businesses, it could affect, um, it could be Pandora's box. And I'm not yeah. sure if that's the case. So yeah, so I'll give you a quick example from my own law practice. I think we've talked about this before, but I am one of Oklahoma's new cannabis attorneys uh, since State Question 788 passed two years ago. Uh, something that 788 said was that there could be no medical marijuana licensees on tribal lands. That's the phrase that was used. There wasn't quite clear that the drafters of 788 understood how broad and complex the term tribal lands is, but the marijuana authority interpreted that, I think, uh, correctly to mean you could not have a medical marijuana uh, dispensary or, or grow operation on tribal trust lands, meaning 
uh, lands that are held in trust by the federal government for the benefit of, of tribes or tribal members, or tribal restricted land, meaning land held by tribal members that um, can't be sold except through some process that involves uh, the Bureau of Indian Affairs. So the question that I got almost immediately after the McGirt case came out was from uh, medical marijuana licensees who remembered that the original application that they filed said you can't have uh, a dispensary on tribal lands and are now hearing from the news that a, an enormous section of, of Oklahoma that stretches all the way from Tulsa County down to McIntosh or excuse me yeah McIn McIntosh County right on on Lake Eufaula is now a, a Native American reservation so there's already those questions being asked um, however to be, to be clear, and this is the, the answer that I came up with and have been giving people, putting land into tribal trust or tribal restricted status is an entirely different thing than that land simply being inside a reservation. Now, something that is maybe a helpful way to think about what it means that the Muscogee Creek Nation's reservation orders are, are now intact um, or recognized intact is um, that this is kind of a separate jurisdictional space within Oklahoma now that's a lot broader than it used to be. And what does that mean, right? That's that's the real question that, that we're getting at. What does that mean for everybody within that, that area? Because it really is kind of now like a state within a state. Uh, uh, there is now a, a lot more Indian country, which the Muscogee Creek Nation has authority to do certain things within than there was before. So in, in, in really simple terms in, in under criminal jurisdiction, what this now means is that um, if you are a Native American, whether you're a member of the Muscogee Creek Nation or not, and um, you commit a major crime, and that's a set of crimes listed in the Major Crimes Act, which has been around since the, the late 19th century, and provides federal criminal jurisdiction for crimes like murder, rape, um, you know, really, really serious criminal offenses. If you're a Native American who has committed one of those offenses in Indian country, meaning in reservations, borders, uh, against a Native victim uh, or a non-Native victim, then the federal government now has criminal jurisdiction over offense. You, before yesterday, if you were a Native American... If I, for instance, I'm a Choctaw citizen, and if I had murdered somebody on Wednesday in uh, Okmulgee County, Oklahoma, the Okmulgee County District Attorney would have had a criminal jurisdiction against me. After McGirt yesterday, that's that's no longer the case. I would be ca categorized as an Indian perpetrator who'd committed a, a crime under the Major Crimes Act and would have to be prosecuted by the federal government. Okay, so that's like the the simple. That's actually, even though that's super complicated and has like a broad range of of applications that are going to be playing out over a long time. That's actually the the simplest and narrowest thing that McGurk could mean. The real question is, what does this do to the civil jurisdiction? And when I say civil jurisdiction, I don't just mean the jurisdiction of the Muscogee Creek Nation or the other four tribes. If, if we end up with a, a situation where it's firmly established that the reservations were all never disestablished. What does 
the, the civil jurisdiction that the tribal governments would, would then have is a whole different ballgame. Now, before I go too far, I, I saw, Scott, was there a point you wanted to make or anything about what we've talked about to this point? Because once we start getting into tribal, civil, and regulatory jurisdiction, it gets, I mean, it's a whole different thing. There was a case from the early 80s that um, dealt with a, a, a federal Supreme Court case from the early 80s that dealt with um, tribal civil jurisdiction over non-Native Americans in tribal reservation territory. And uh, as a general matter, the Supreme Court ruled that tribes do not have any civil jurisdiction whatsoever over non-Native Americans in reservation territory. But there are two exceptions that the court listed. They, have, they said that the, the, the tribes retain inherent sovereign power to exercise some forms of civil jurisdiction over non-Indians on their reservations and even on non-Indian fee lands. And that's a really important point because that means even in land that is within a reservation but isn't owned by a tribal entity and isn't even owned by a tribal member. So, Brian, court, I think you go ahead. You may be answering the question I was going to ask before I lost my internet connection. Okay. But one of the right. things that seems that seems critical about um, McGirt and as it relates to the Major Crimes Act is that it means that the native tribes have jurisdiction over tribal members who commit major crimes on tribal land, right? But it doesn't mean. Yeah. That if, like, you are a Choctaw citizen, you said, I am not a native, I'm not a tribal member, so if I committed murder today in Okmulgee County against a tribal member or a non-tribal member, it would still be under the jurisdiction of the Okmulgee County Sheriff and DA, right? Or is that different? No, no. So it's, it's this is one of those things where you kind of have to box chart it, right? Because the, the, the question is... What is the Native American status of the defendant in the criminal case? What is the Native American status of the victim? And what is the type of crime? And depending on what your answer to those variables is, you're going to get some jurisdictional um, response. So as of Wednesday, right, there, there's been no, no decision on this. If I, a Native citizen, had committed um, murder against a um, native victim in the Muscogee Creek Nation Territory. Uh, again, Okmulgee County, right? That's, that's, that's right in the heart over there. Um, then the Okmulgee County DA could have charged me with murder. But after yesterday, it becomes a much more complicated question. So as a, as a, as a native citizen, if I were to murder a native victim, on um, in, in Ogmogee County or anywhere else in the Muscogee Creek Nation territory, uh, that the, the local state county district attorney would not have criminal jurisdiction over me. And, and here's another important wrinkle, if it was a non-major crime, right? If I had just beaten up somebody who was also Native American in Ogmogee County today, then the state would also not have jurisdiction over me. The tribe would have jurisdiction over me. Because if you've got a, an, an Indian defendant and an Indian victim, and it's a non-major crime, which would be any crime other than 
uh, one of those crimes listed in the Major Crimes Act, then the tribe has criminal jurisdiction over me. But if it's if it's an Indian uh, defendant and a non-Indian victim, either way, it's it's federal jurisdiction for either um, major crimes or or non-major crimes. So yeah, it gets re- the, the the criminal jurisdiction stuff gets really complicated, but is usefully guided by statute. There is actually a, a very clear statutory answer to when you have criminal jurisdiction in the tribal courts versus when you have it with the state courts versus when you have it with the federal courts. What we were getting into though is when it. Go ahead, Scott. That's what I see. So what if it? What if the defendant, right, whoever committed the crime, is a non-native person, like they're not a tribal not member. Is that delineated in that statute that you're talking about? But they committed a crime against an Indian victim. Sure, we'll say that. <laughs> yeah, federal, federal, federal jurisdiction for um, major crimes and and non-major crimes. But if it's a, a non-Indian perpetrator and a non-Indian victim, state jurisdiction across the board. Interesting, because then my next question was going to be because okay. you were talking about how this how this how this um, you know the civil jurisdiction is like a whole other ball of wax. And my my what I was leading up to was if this only applies to tribal members, then maybe this isn't as big a deal as like people are making it out to be. But it sounds like that this this does apply to non-tribal members as it pertains to their dealings with tribal members. It's it could be really messy. Is that accurate? Yeah. Uh, Yes. Uh, and, And it's it's. It's not messy in the same way civil jurisdiction is messy because, again, you've got a statute that, that lines it out. But um, – and, and for, for the most part, what this would not allow is tribal jurisdiction over non-natives, okay? There's a very important exception there. The Violence Against Women Act does provide tribal jurisdictions with authority to prosecute non-Native Americans who commit certain domestic violence crimes against Native American citizens. So again, criminal jurisdiction is, you really do have to box chart it, but it's guided by statute and it's it's somewhat clear. Civil jurisdiction is guided by these these two, this, this bright line principle, which is that uh, tribal governments don't have civil jurisdiction over non-tribal members in, in in Indian country, in their tribal reservation territories. But there are two really important exceptions, and those are going to become critical to how we kind of chart our way forward in, in Oklahoma. Uh, the one exception is, is about consensual relationships. A tribe can regulate through taxation, licensing, or other means the activities of non-members who enter consensual relationships with the tribe or their members through commercial dealing contracts, leases, or other arrangements. Okay, so you can you can see how if the if the reservation borders were not intact, then that's a pretty limited exception. It would only apply to people who have entered into a contract with you know the, the Choctaw Nation to um, do some work on. Uh, uh, some kind of project they've got going down in Durant, right, on on, uh, on tribal land. But if the reservation's borders are much bigger and include lots of counties, then um, there's a lot more ways in which those consensual relationships can develop. The second exception, though, is one that is even broader in, in, in a lot of ways. It says a tribe may, the court said, a tribe may also retain inherent power 
to exercise civil authority over the conduct of non-Indians on fee lands within its reservation. And again, fee lands means the lands not owned by a tribal member or not owned by, um, not held in trust by the federal government for the tribe. Um, nothing like that. It is just land that is owned by somebody. Um, but tribes even have authority to over the conduct of non-Indians on those kind of lands within its reservation when that conduct threatens or has some direct effect on the political integrity, economic security, or health and welfare of the tribe. So these are two pretty broad concepts that have historically been limited uh, over the last 20, 30 years or so. Uh, um, I think the, this Montana case was um, early 80s, but I may be wrong about that. But either way, the Supreme Court has generally tended to move things into a, into, uh, a narrower state when it's interpreted these two exceptions. Um, so this ruling yesterday not only creates this question about how these two exceptions are going to be interpreted in Oklahoma, but it's also really interesting that we now have a, a decisive 5-4 majority on the Supreme Court that could take a much more expansive view of these exceptions. And we're going to immediately start running into this in Oklahoma, something that, again, in the medical marijuana uh, world. Something that I, uh, a question I got asked earlier today was about whether a, whether the Muscogee Creek Nation could theoretically tax medical marijuana licensees that are located within the, the Creek Nation reservation. Um, it's re, it's a, it, the, the, the problem here, and this is all, I'll, I'll kind of close on this for, for this portion of it. The problem here is that we just don't know what the upper limits of the way these uh, provisions are going to be interpreted is going to be. But tribes do have, I mean, just as a, as, a, as a bright line legal matter, tribes do have some authority to not only uh, haul non-tribal members into civil court for matters, but they actually do have authority to enact legislation that can potentially affect non-tribal members within their reservation territory. So we're kind of getting, I think, close to our time here, but I want to, so I want to try to summarize and then maybe ask um, kind of what, you know, what happens next, but it sounds like what we know or what we think we know now is that the definition of these reservations, like both the, the physical size, right? It's like 19 million acres worth of land we're talking about that includes all of Tulsa, right, is like a notable city. I mean, a bunch of other cities too, but like the fact that Tulsa is now in the middle of a well-defined Indian reservation and in many ways could be subject to the rules and laws and legislation therein, right? That's an enormous change in this. Um, and it's not just the Creek Nation Reservation, but it sounds like because they've established it here, the precedent is set that those rules extend to other reservations in Oklahoma and across the country, right? So I guess like um, the takeaway is that Indian reservations were like dotted lines on a map. And now like it's a bold line around that, that they're like, this is this is our land. It has been for 200 years. You're living on it. You got to play by our rules if they went that way. And I'm not saying they're going to. They've already come out with, you know, General Hunter and said, like, we're going to come up with a plan for how to 
ensure all this stuff happens. But your last comment there of we don't know what the upper boundary is, is the part that will be established through case law, right? Through trial and error over the next however many years. Like this will, these will be individual things that they get litigated and, and, and that's kind of how we find out what the limits are. Is that correct? Well, and Andy, before we go into your question, I think it's important to say as well to some listeners, because people have this perception of tribe as if it's primitive, as if tribes are living in, you know, these dust bowl caricatures of, of people wearing feathers and things, as if they don't already have sophisticated governments established um, that they don't yeah. already have yeah. governors and um, city council members and their own um, healthcare infrastructure and police and, forces and schools. And, right. Absolutely. Right. And so it's important to note that, like, because there's a tweet from Ann Coulter that was pretty racist in saying that, you know, well, it was related to, um, I believe it's like domestic mm-hmm. violence and killings. I'm like, well, it doesn't matter. Now you're, you know, you're in Indian territory. This is just a conversation about where in the justice system and whose justice system you're now going into because you're still going to, you know, have the ability to go before court and all that kind of stuff because tribes have their own judicial systems as well. (laughs) And so I just wanted to make sure that we acknowledge too that, um, it's figuring out how governments intersect with one another, not now people have to live in primitive yeah. environments. That's, Ted Cruz had a tweet yesterday as well that said, well, they just gave away half of Oklahoma, literally. Ha- Manhattan's next. And I was like, okay, just just the two words gave away is yeah. wildly incorrect. Like, in fact, the ruling is saying, um, oh, no, we've actually uh, been misinterpreting this for the last... 200 years this is your land um that we first they took the land from the natives then they quote gave them this land here in what we now know as oklahoma and then they didn't follow that for a very long time so there's no there's no giving away of anything it is at best restoring the present of land that they got way back then I will say there is a lot that I would disagree with uh, Justice Gorsuch about on any given day, but um, and I haven't read the full opinion. I've read several parts of it, but I haven't read the full opinion. But even the parts I've read, there is some like there is at least to me, if you're a government and you know, like Supreme Court nerd, there is some really beautiful language in the opinion. Um, I think about like native rights and the wrongs that have been done to them by the federal government over the years. Um, and it's really like, it's very, I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's moving to me as a non-native person to read. Um, so to the, the tribal members who have struggled with this and been struggling for this for you know decades, um, I can't imagine what it's like for them to, to have this, have this day, like see this become, real what they feel like they've known to be true the whole time it is interesting and brian i'm curious what your thoughts are on this like 
Justice Gorsuch did write at a, at a couple of places in the opinion, because, you know, the state of Oklahoma, one of their arguments as well was like, hey, even if the reservation wasn't disestablished, you can't do this because it would like make things super freaking complicated in Oklahoma in terms of criminal jurisdiction, in terms of prosecutions that have happened, you know, let a bunch of people out of jail and, you know, make civil, you know, civil compacts super comp- like it's just going to make things really, really messy. And Justice Gorsuch wrote in the opinion essentially like, hey, that's not really true because we're really just talking about the Major Crimes Act, here, number one. And to the extent, which is rare, that this has implications for you know civil jurisdictions, eh, the state and the tribes can figure that out. They've, they've figured shit out before. They can figure it out this time too. And I've seen that be kind of a, a popular, like there's been a lot of hand-wringing hand – on Twitter about people like, Oh my God, like, what does this mean? And a lot of people saying it really doesn't mean that much, but it seems like it actually really does have the potential to mean quite a lot. And I'm just kind of curious, why are there these two? So like, why are there people who seem like they're, I mean, I guess, do you see what I'm saying at all? Like, cause it seems pretty straightforward from your explanation that like, yeah, this can have really major implications for lots of different things. And like, why is Justice Gorsuch saying like, I don't know about that. That seems like, why didn't he just say, yeah, it could have major implications for a lot of different areas of law, but that's fine because it's the right thing to do. So that's what's, that's yeah. cost of business. Yeah. I thought, I thought he, he, he made a number of, of points in that regard, um, especially towards the end of the opinion that um, one thing that one thing that I'm here, I'm going to pull up one of my one of the parts of the opinion that I thought was really um, telling and important was actually about this civil jurisdiction matter, and it really kind of, it, it sort of goes to undercut Gorsuch's claim, which isn't really that made that strongly that this is limited to the Major Crimes Act because he. He talked about um, federal assistance. He said it isn't even clear what the real upshot, what the real upshot of this borrowing into civil law might be. Oklahoma reports recognizing the existence of the Creek Reservation for purposes of the MCA might potentially trigger a variety of federal civil statutes and rules, including ones making the region eligible for assistance with homeland security, historical preservation, schools, highways, roads, primary care clinics, housing assistance, nutritional programs, disability programs. But what are we to make of this? Some may find developments like these unwelcome, but from what we are told, others may celebrate them. I think that, you know, not only was he saying, yeah, this this means what it means. It means yeah. this is now a Native American reservation. But I think he was also saying, well, I'll, I'll put it this way. Justice Gorsuch is unique, seems to me, among the um, conservative justices on the court because he's not lived in Washington, D.C. exclusively for a long, long time. He's actually had lived in a Western state. He practiced in Colorado before he went to, to D.C. to be in the Justice Department, and he was a judge in Colorado. If you're out here, if you're a person like me who grew up in the heart of the Choctaw Nation, the Choctaw Nation government is a very real thing that looks and walks and talks like a normal government. They have police officers. I was born in the Choctaw Hospital. They have uh, community centers, you know, it, it's, it's, I think to the other justices in the minority, um, Native American governments maybe seem pretty foreign to them, pretty alien. They probably don't understand them 
as well as somebody like him or somebody like us who's lived in a state where they are very real presences. And I will add, in many ways, have met the needs of their citizens to a degree that uh, those of us who are, you know, simply living in Oklahoma territory, not Indian country, because, you know, we live over here in Oklahoma County and um, see what the legislature is doing. Uh, not as not as successful. I, I will say this. Tribal governments have been more successful at meeting their citizens' needs at times than state governments have. They're very effective. They're very yeah. effective. I mean, some and of the state governments, even though they don't have to. Yeah. I mean, you know, I think it's the, I, I think it's the, I don't, I don't know. I can't remember what tribe, but like, you know, as they're talking about the gaming compacts, like several of the tribes have pointed out like, Hey, you're trying to get more money out of us from these gaming compacts. Do you realize that if it wasn't for our hospitals, like citizens in a lot of these rural counties wouldn't have anywhere to get medical care. Right. Like, and we don't like, we're pumping the dollars into the infrastructure out here that the state government isn't. So like, let us keep doing that. Not, you know, trying to get more money from gaming compacts. So you can lower income tax rates again, you know, <laughs> like, um, yeah, well, I, 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 I agree. Like, I think, I think, and I hadn't, you know, I knew the justice court was from Colorado and had done a lot of Indian law work. Um, but I had never really thought of, the point that both you and Bailey made that people who haven't grown up in some place like Oklahoma or maybe, you know, Montana or New Mexico, Arizona don't appreciate the level of um, sophistication and modernity and functionality that the tribal governments have that oftentimes make them much more effective um, than, than municipal and state bodies. And you, I think we touched on this earlier, but isn't, there's some discussion about the possibility that tribes could leverage taxes um, on people who reside or work in their things. And so just the idea of like a, like a maps type one cent sales tax that affects on all of the Creek nation, right. And includes all of Tulsa it raises, you know, sales tax rates for those people. Sure. But like that also results in a ton of money that would go for the tribe to expand their infrastructure, right. To expand because those, all those core services they offer, they now might be expected by people to provide that to a broader, uh, a broader audience. Right. So if you're providing police and healthcare and education and those things, um, in what you believed to be your reservation area before, and now you find out that it's millions of square miles larger than like, uh, or millions of acres larger than, um, you've got to find a way to, to help pay for that too. So fascinating. Well, Brian, we really appreciate you being here and talking through this as always. Um, it, every time we have the conversation, I think Scott and I both walk away with the desire to go to law school so that we can have a more intelligent conversation with you. Yes, um, that's one hundred percent true. Add <laughs> me in that bucket too. <laughs> um, well, and so that brings us to uh, the end of this episode. Uh, Brian, thank you for being here. Always a pleasure. Bailey, thank you for being here as well. Thank you, Scott. Thanks, man. Wouldn't miss it. Uh, my name is Andy Moore, and you've been listening to Let's Pod This, 
Please remember to subscribe and rate our pod on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and tell your friends so that other folks can discover us and become more informed and more engaged citizens. Uh, you can connect with all of us on Twitter and Instagram. We're at Let's Fix This Okay. Scott directly is at SC Melson. Bailey's at Bailey M. Perkins. I am at Andy OKC. Brian is at Brian Ted Jones, right? Yeah. Me, yeah. All right. And uh, you can like on our Twitter. Facebook page on Twitter, yes. Uh, you can like our Facebook page at facebook.com slash let's fix this okay. Our website, let's fix this okay.org. Coming soon, probably the first of next month, we'll have a new website. That's a very exciting announcement that I'll plug right now and we'll talk more about later. Uh, you can also make a donation, sign up um, for a newsletter, sponsor a podcast episode, which would be really cool. Our podcast is edited and produced by Scott and me, and Let's Pod This is a member of the Mostly Harmless Media Network. Our theme music is called Rhino Funk by artist So Down. And I'm tired of reading the script, so that's the end of the episode. Everyone, have a great week. 